Romans 1, 16 and 17, hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. According to legend, the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes was in his bathtub when he had a flash of mathematical insight. And he supposedly jumped out of his bathtub and he shouted, I have found, or as you might know the expression, as the Greek word has come into English, Eureka, Eureka. Now, I don't think people say Eureka much anymore, but it's come into the English language, and that seems to be where it came from, a Eureka moment when we have a flash of insight, and all of a sudden we understand something in a new way. Supposedly, another great mathematician, Isaac Newton, was away from the city, he had a flash of insight into the laws of motion as an apple fell from the tree. Now that may or may not be true, but it's a great story anyway. And he supposedly had a flash there, a eureka moment. I'm guessing that if you are a believer in Christ, and if you're serious about the Bible, and you read the Bible regularly, and you listen to sermons, every once in a while at least, you have eureka moments. They might be moments in which you were reading a text that you've read a number of times before, but all of a sudden somebody explains it to you or simply you gain insight into it. And when that happens, it feels like a brand new revelation from God, doesn't it? It feels like God gave you something brand new, and indeed he did through his word. Now what we have in these two verses that we're looking at today, we have a a hinge We have kind of a couple verses that pivot from the the introductory section we saw last week into what is coming. But at the same time, many people have recognized that these two verses kind of stand on their own. Even though they they flow and, and tie this chapter together, they kind of stand on their own as the explanation, the summary explanation of what this whole letter is about. And we we find here that Paul describes the gospel as a eureka moment in history, as a time in which the lights went on, a time in which he he revealed a new insight to humanity. Now, during the whole letter, we're going to be learning more about that insight, but we get a a glimpse into it today, and and that's why many people have, have had personal eureka moments when reading these verses or reading the letter to the Romans. This is a eureka letter, And that's why we tend to have eureka moments when we say, oh, I have found, I finally understand. Now, this sentence explains verse 15. It's the reason for verse 15. Verse 15, from last week, you recall, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then the explanation for why he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm eager to preach it. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of it. And so that's that's the explanation. And this is a a technique. Denying the negative is a way of affirming the positive. 
In other words, if I say to you, how are you? And you say to me, not bad. What are you doing? You're denying the negative. I'm not bad. So what are you implying? Pretty good. Pretty good. Maybe not wonderfully good, but, but at least you're not bad. And so you're generally good. And so that's what we have here. He denies the negative. He says, I am not ashamed when it comes to the gospel. And um, he, he denies the negative and therefore affirms the positive. And what, to say it positively, he's saying, I am eager to preach the gospel in Rome because I delight in the gospel. I glory in the gospel. I, I boast in the gospel. It is my life. It is my boast. It is my glory. It is my joy. Now, at the same time, why does he say it negatively? Well, he may be gesturing at something that can occur even among Christians, and that is embarrassment about the gospel. It's possible for even Christians to be embarrassed about the gospel. Why would that be? Well, there's, there's a good reason for that. Paul described the gospel as foolishness. He said it is foolishness to those who don't believe it. In 1 Corinthians 1, just a book over from Romans, he says the word of the cross, the word about a crucified Savior, is ridiculous. It is folly to those who are perishing. And so this is the world in which we live, and this, this cross, this message of the cross, this gospel, to those who do not receive it, it looks to be ridiculous. And so there's a temptation even for us when people look at us and sneeringly say, do you really believe? And you can fill in the blank there. Do you really believe that there is a God who created all things out of nothing? Do you really believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh? Do you really believe that this, this, uh, this person from Nazareth named Jesus can take away all your sins? Do you really believe that God raised him from the dead? And when, and when we're backed against the wall like that and, and we're, we're sneered at because this seems so foolish to those on the outside, we might, we might lose our nerve some and we might get a little embarrassed at, at some of these things that we really do believe. It's easy to get intimidated. But Paul has the answer to that. And the answer is this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? It is the power of God for salvation. It, it's the power of God for salvation. As ridiculous as this message might seem to many, it is the power of God for salvation. And that's, that helps us to overcome the possibility of being embarrassed. And you might take, later on today, I won't read it all, but you might refer to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, because it's something of a commentary on that. Uh, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on to explain the genius, if we can say it that way, of the, the message of the cross. It purposely, purposely looks like foolishness. It purposely looks like weakness. Why? To humble the power of the powerful and to humble the wisdom of the wise and to point them to a crucified Savior who is the only one who can save them. 
this chapter ends by saying, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You can't boast about your strength. You can't boast about your wisdom when you believe the gospel because you're recognizing that it alone, not your wisdom, not your strength, is the power of God for salvation. And so we need to remember that. Paul reminds himself of that. Paul reminds us of that. This is the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. We do not have to be embarrassed about it. On the contrary, we can glory in it. And when people say, do you really believe? (laughs) The answer is, I certainly do. And I'll tell you why. Because it's the power of God for salvation. And, and I can tell you that I've personally experienced that power of God for salvation in my own life. And I'd love to tell you more about it. Now the tables have turned, haven't they? Now, this, this gospel, um, it, by the way, I, I, have, I have this experience. Um, over the years, uh, I developed a, a little Bible study based on a Bible study I used in college. The Bible study is called One to One, and it's for studying the Bible with unbelievers. And I, I developed it now, I call it Introduction to God's Grace, and it's got five brief chapters on very simple things, who is God, what is sin, uh, what's wrong with the world, it, it, who is Jesus Christ, etc. how do I respond, and, and I have to say, whenever I sit down with a, a new person, and I, and I start looking at this, and I think, oh my goodness, this is all I have to offer? This is so simple. This is so simple, and, I, and, I, and I'm tempted to get embarrassed. And then, as I go through it, and I see the lights coming on in their lives, which we saw repeatedly in Mexico. I don't know why we don't see that as often here, but repeatedly the lights would go on. People would be having these eureka moments, and I'd say, ah, the power of God. The power of God for salvation. These simple truths about God and sin and Christ and faith and repentance. The power of God. Now, the, the power of God... For salvation, and Paul says, for whom it is the power of God. And he says, it is for everyone. So there's a universality about this. It is for everyone, and then he says, who believes, who believes. And this is the first link. Keep this in mind. This is the first link in Romans between salvation and belief. Salvation and belief. And verse 17 is going to bring that out more. But it's the power of God for salvation to Everyone who believes. This is the first of many emphases on the universality of the gospel. And this is the first of many emphases on the connection between believing and salvation. But then surprisingly, there is a, there is a priority within this universality. It's for everyone who believes, but there is an order here. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in this context, Greek is non-Jew, is Gentile. Now, how should we understand this? Well, there is certainly a temporal priority to the Jews. Certainly a temporal priority. Who got the message first? The Jews did. To whom did Jesus go first? To the Jews. To whom did the the apostles preach first? To the Jews. There's a temporal priority, and that that temporal priority is recognized by Paul in Acts uh, chapter 13. He says, uh, it says, 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So he's basically saying, you had the first opportunity, you were first in line, you rejected it, 
Now we're going to the Gentiles. So there was a temporal priority to the Jews. Now the question, and it's a big question, um, is, is or do the Jews have a special place to this day in the plan of God's salvation? And that's a huge question that I'm not going to answer yet because chapters 9 to 11 of Romans address that very question. But there is at least a temporal progression from first preached to Jews and then to Gentiles. But the question is, is there a priority on Jewish uh, Jews to this day in God's salvation? You'll have to wait till chapters 9 to 11 till Paul addresses that at length. Now, um, the gospel, the gospel, uh, the next sentence, verse 17, it explains how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all believers. Verse 17, it says, for, and notice that there are two connectors here. Verse 15 says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Verse 16, for, here's the explanation, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then, verse 17, for, in it, that is the gospel. So he's explaining, why do I want to preach it? It's the power of salvation. Why is it the power of salvation? Well, it's because it reveals the righteousness from God or the righteousness of God. Now, um, this, this might be kind of a surprise here, uh, and, and this is something that has been kind of puzzled over and, and still to this day wrangled over. In what way is the gospel the revelation of the righteousness of God? Now, it says it's revealed, and this word revealed is uncovered. It's, it's where we get the word apocalypse. It's an uncovering. It's an unveiling. There is a a newness to this revelation. So there's something revealed here about the righteousness of God that we didn't know, or at least not clearly, back in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a new idea here about the righteousness of God. It's, it's not just displayed, but it's uncovered in a new way. It was announced beforehand. We saw that in verse 1. The prophets announced it beforehand. But now, when the gospel came into the world, it's an uncovering and it's an unveiling. But there's an, uh, there's an ongoing debate about what Paul meant by the righteousness of God. And um, sometimes, sometimes the, the subtleties of these arguments would have completely escaped the original readers. So here's, here's, a, here's a, a rule for interpreting the Bible. One good question to ask is, what would the original readers have understood with this? Now, that's not the only question to ask. But if we're getting too sophisticated and too subtle that they never could have figured out our interpretations, then that's, that's a clue that maybe, maybe we've gone too far here. But basically, there are three ideas, and these three ideas are firmly grounded in Scripture. So these are three possible ideas. The righteousness of God could mean the most obvious thing, that God is righteous, that, that God in his character is impartial, he is just, he is righteous in his own character. The second is, if you look at uh, how the righteousness of God appears in the Old Testament, sometimes it's active. God is righteous in his actions of saving. And save me in your righteousness, the, the psalmist can call out. So it's his right acting, his just acting. Or another way to look at it is that it is his gift. It is righteousness that comes from God. It is not so much a characteristic of God, but is something that belongs to God and he gives to others. Those are basically the three ideas. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. We've already seen God's impartiality. The gospel is for whom? 
all. So there's an impartiality about that. In the next couple chapters, we're going to see that there's an impartiality about God's judgment as well. He doesn't have favorites. There is no difference. And so there's an impartiality. So, so certainly that idea is here that God is impartial in his judgments. Now, the, the, the truth is that if the, the righteousness of God simply means that God is impartial in his judgments, then, then that is not a new revelation, is it? We already knew that from the Old Testament. And it's also not particularly good news either. Because if, if the only thing that the, the gospel says is, God is righteous and judges righteously, is that good news? Not if you're a sinner. And, and so it's not a message of salvation if that's all that it says. I mentioned Martin Luther last week. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he really wrestled with this verse. And this is what he says about it. He says he was studying Romans, and he was reading, and he said he really wanted to understand this, but this verse was standing in his way. This verse that says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And he said it stood in my way, and then he confessed, I hated that word, righteousness of God. He hated it, which according to the use of the time, he said, I understood to mean the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. And so he said, it's not enough that the law condemns me by declaring that God is righteous. Now the gospel comes along and piles on as well and condemns me even further. The law says God is righteous and he will judge you righteously. And now the gospel comes in and says the same thing. And he says, there's no hope in that. And that's why he hated this concept of the righteousness of God. Now I bring that out just to say this. It can't just mean that. It can't just mean that. It could mean at least that, but it can't just mean only that. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to let Paul explain it over these next chapters. And so I'm not going to pour all of those chapters into this verse. However, in this verse, we have a preview of what this means, this righteousness of God. Why? Because it is connected to faith, inextricably connected to faith. It says in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith or out of faith into faith, different ways to translate that. So somehow this righteousness of God is connected to our faith. If it's just a declaration that God is righteous, our faith doesn't have anything to do with it, does it? He's righteous whether we believe it or not. But this righteousness is somehow connected to our faith. And then there's a, a quotation from scripture from Habakkuk to back that up. So, this newly revealed righteousness of God is from faith to faith. Once again, it's hard to know how to translate that unusual expression. But one simple way is simply to say faith and nothing but faith. Faith from beginning to end. Faith, as the NIV has it, New International Version, faith from first to last. There are a number of subtle things, like you look at the different interpretations. Well, faith in the Old Testament, faith in the New Testament, uh, immature faith or uh, mature faith, and there are all sorts of interpretations, but I think the, a simple one is simply the one that fits Beth here. It's faith. It's from faith, and it's to faith, so you never get away from faith when it comes to the righteousness of God. This is all about faith, and, and faith, as we might say, faith alone. Faith alone. Now, Paul supported this declaration with a slightly modified quotation of Habakkuk 2.4. 
And this seems to be one of Paul's favorite quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, If you look at verse 17, it says, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He modified that a little bit from, from Habakkuk. And that modification has given rise to a couple of different interpretations. And what I want to do is read this verse a couple times with a little bit different emphasis. The, the words in their order are, the righteous by faith shall live. That's the order. And there are two ways to read that. The first is this, the righteous by faith shall live. And the other is, the righteous by faith shall live. You see the difference? The righteous, however they became righteous, how will they conduct their lives? Well, they will conduct their lives by faith. So the righteous, however they might be righteous, will conduct their lives by faith. The other way to read it, exact same words, the righteous by faith, how do they get to be righteous? By faith. How are they righteous before God? By faith. What will be the result of them being righteous by faith? They will live. And in the language of Romans, in much of the New Testament, live means live eternally. Another way of saying the righteous by faith will be saved. So which is it? Well, in Habakkuk, in the context of Habakkuk, the first the first reading, it fits really well. Habakkuk is encouraging them and saying, okay, you are the righteous, and how are you going to live in these difficult circumstances? Well, you will live by faith. And we can hear Paul later in Romans saying, amen. Romans chapter 6, how will the righteous live? The righteous will live by faith. But in this context, in these first chapters of Romans, the second reading fits better. The righteous by faith. What will happen with the righteous by faith? They will live. And they will live eternally. That is, not only is God righteous in himself, but he communicates his righteousness to us through the instrument of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's put together what we have so far about this gospel. Last week we learned that the gospel is a message about his son, His son is descended from David according to his human nature. He died and God raised him from the dead to be Christ and to be Lord of all. And now we add to that that the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe because it reveals the righteousness of God and believing it will result in life for all who have it. So... What's the takeaway? You probably come to sermons oftentimes wondering, okay, what's the takeaway when when Robbie and I grade student sermons? There's a section of the student sermon and it says, application, did it tell the congregation specifically what they should do? And sometimes the sermons do, sometimes they don't, and we grade them accordingly. But what should we do with this? What's the do? What's the takeaway part? Pretty obvious, isn't it? If the, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, then what should you do? Believe. Yeah, that's it. That's simple. Believe it. It's the power of God for salvation to all. 
even to you, no matter what your past, no matter what your present, whatever it might be, it's the power of God for salvation for you, if you will but believe it. Now, Martin Luther came to believe it. We don't know exactly when. He was already a devoted monk, and the, the chronology is not necessarily clear, but it's, but it's interesting to read. I alluded to this, but I want to read the rest of the story here. You remember Martin Luther? He said he hated the righteousness of God. And he, he said, I raged with a fierce and troubled consciousness. And he said, nevertheless, I beat upon Paul at this verse because I needed to understand what it meant. And then he writes this, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. In other words, he jumped out of his bathtub and screamed what? Eureka! Eureka! I have found. What did he find? He found the righteousness of God that was available to him so that he could live and live eternally. That's the kind of moment we need to have sometime in our life, to have that eureka moment when we understand the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel and that it is for us and we lay hold of it by faith. But it doesn't have to be some dim moment in the past or some distinct moment in the past. This is a kind of ongoing eureka moment that we can have as we encounter the gospel over and over and over again and marvel at the fact that in it is revealed the righteousness of God that is the salvation for all who believe it, even for me and for you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this eureka moment in history when you turned on the lights of humanity, when you, you gave insight to, to the apostles to share with the world, and, and, and we, we learned something new about your righteousness, not only that you are righteous, indeed you are righteous God, but that your righteousness is available to all who believe and that it results in salvation. And so we pray, O oh God, that all of us would have that righteousness, which is a righteousness by faith, and that from us the message of the gospel would go out. Lord, keep us from being embarrassed about it in, in our day when it may be sneered at as it has been in all ages, but rather, O oh God, that we would go out with the firm confidence and conviction that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And we pray, O oh God, that you would use us to bring others to this righteousness that is by faith from first to last. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.